with investing, it's always come down to the people. Everybody likes to allocate their money to other people by habit, I guess, whether it's a stockbroker or a realtor or crowdfunded or whatever. But in the end, it's always down to the people who run it. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Our guest this week is Daniel Amaduri. Daniel is the editor of the Wealth Research Group and the co-founder of Future Money Trends Letter, FMT Advisory, and Crush the Street. After warning family and friends in 2007 about the coming market and mortgage collapse, Amaduri started his own YouTube channel, Vision Victory, which has received over 10 million views. That's pretty awesome. On March 18th, 2008, Daniel called for Dow 8000, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, AIG, and Washington Mutual. During the mortgage crisis, he helped people buy put options on countrywide mortgage, and those puts saw a gain of 1,400%. He and I were talking a bit before the interview, and he had a very interesting ride during the last financial collapse. And there are certainly some very interesting times ahead of us and what we're seeing now politically and both there and in monetary policy. So we're going to talk about a bit about that today, more about financial independence, which he's been financially independent for quite a while now. It's a very impressive feat. Very excited to get into it. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. So we were talking a bit before we started recording about kind of where the market stands now with interest rates, both in the US and internationally, and some effective yields being actually negative in certain areas when you factor in inflation. Let's pick that up a bit and bring the listeners in. Where are things today as money goes? Where does money stand today? We're in an interesting place. We're at a crossroads because we've the Federal Reserve and the central banks have never gone this far in market intervention, whether it's our stock market where central banks have openly bought stocks, which creates volume and demand for the shares low interest rates, which is encouraged the buybacks, which again pushes the shares up. And you also have heavy intervention in the in our bond market with quantitative easing, interest rates, which are all essentially fake worldwide. It's a very interesting time. I'm not a doomsday guy, but I'm certainly being on the conservative side. As we speak, I've been changing a lot of my investments and rotating out of anything that's lower quality or a little risky and really kind of beefing up the quality, beefing up cash positions that I have. Hmm. And I mean, depending on who you ask, the last crash was certainly revved up by the Fed and monetary policy prior to that, not having interest rates quite as high as probably the market would have them. And then here we stand, interest rates were at zero for a decade, and they're starting to ratchet them up very slowly. Many people will say that you know, they took too long, they waited too long to do that. I certainly agree. But where do you stand there? Should they have cut down to zero in the first place? I don't know. Should they have started bringing rates up six years ago? I mean, what are your thoughts there? It's very hard. It's easy for us to money more carry back, right? But uh, it's, it's very hard to go back to what they should have done because what they should have done is what no one would have ever done. They needed to allow the bad debt and the bad businesses to actually be washed out of the system. So the recession and severe crash we had in 2008 and early 2009, if anybody would have had the balls to let it happen. They should have let it happen. And we probably would have had a really ugly 2009. 
but we'd be sitting here today with probably the healthiest economy in a few hundred years. Unfortunately, they took everything that was bad and they propped it up. So instead of the good prudent banks increasing their market share, the bad zombie banks increased their market share. Instead of the good and prudent investor who could have come in and bought real estate really cheap or got pushed housing prices down to make them more affordable, they propped the housing market up and pushed it up to where basically we're back at 2006 levels. So in a perfect world, they should have done almost nothing or just got the hell out of the way and let all the bad debt go away. But now they're in a situation where they propped it all up and they're trying to exit out of it now. So you got the Federal Reserve who owns a ton of mortgages and has, I mean, not only the Fed, but we have SEC disclosures from central banks, the Norwegian Central Bank, as well as the Swiss National Bank, literally buying Facebook and Apple and Google. So now you've got central banks printing money to purchase stocks and God knows what else. It's interesting to see what's going to happen. But honestly, there will be some sort of washout at some point because no matter what, you can't defy gravity. You can't defy natural science and natural order. And at some point in time, this is going to have to be undone. The good news is everybody in power, whether it's in you're in Russia or China, the United States, everybody wants to keep things stable. And so I don't think anybody's going to do anything to purposely put us into a tailspin. There are some big black swans out there, that's for sure. So in the 2008 timeframe, we had too big to fail. We had a handful of banks that were as the, the saying goes, they were too big for the government to feel comfortable, you know, allowing them to fail. So they bought all the bad debt, printed a bunch of money, propped up all these bad banks. And then now we're, at a, we're currently in a situation where there are even fewer of the big banks and they're bigger than they were before. So that's certainly frightening. What are your thoughts about how do we thoughts about protecting ourselves from whatever the coming trouble might be as we, you know, kind of reflect on what the trouble has been in the past and successful strategies that worked back then, it might be reasonable to figure they'll work in the future. So what are your thoughts about that moving forward? For each individual, it's a great time just to kind of reflect on where you are financially. And obviously anybody listening to this show is aware and is trying to better their lives financially. But the first place I would start with is just making sure you have enough set aside to deal with some sort of emergency. So make sure you're not being overly aggressive with your investments. Make sure you have some nice cash just sitting there waiting for you if, if there's a crisis. Also, whatever you do in life, whether it's a business or an employee, make sure you're delivering your A game because if there is going to be a downturn, you want to make sure you're not on that list of businesses that people might not interact with because they don't need you. Or if you're an employee, you want to make sure you're not the employee that's going to be the first one to be laid off. So make sure you're over delivering in value to whatever you do in life. And then as far as your investment portfolio, if you don't understand it or don't know what you're in, you should get out of it. And you should also ask yourself if you wouldn't buy it right now. So for example, if you've got $100,000 in the stock market, ask yourself, if I had $100,000 right now in my checking account, would I buy those stocks? Would I do that right now? And if you wouldn't, you should just get rid of it. I mean, that's how I analyze. When, it, when I really have to corner myself on what I'm going to do with an investment, that's what you do. If you had the cash sitting in your pocket, would you make that decision right now? Because if you wouldn't make that decision, then you shouldn't be in that investment. So really evaluate the investments you want to be in. I'd focus on quality, focus on income, focus on being just make sure you're being prudent and well diversified. 
stocks for the long term have a huge upside bias due to not only inflation, but in general, if you're just tracking the S&P 500, from the 500 companies that started, there's only about 82 around right now, or Dow Jones actually, uh, now that I think G got taken out, the Dow, original Dow 30 is not even around. So just keep that in mind. There's always an upside bias for stocks. So I'm not trying to tell you to time the market, but if you need the money in the next six months or two years, you should definitely consider being in a, in the safer side of investments. And with this show being called Passive All Strategies, I mean, look, you should either be in stocks that you can set and forget, like the good Vanguard ETF, or focus on those income investments from like single family homes or some sort of thing where you can have some paper investments. Hmm. And something I've been thinking about recently is as interest rates tick upward, presuming they'll continue to go up, what are your thoughts on what we should be doing with our debt situation, especially as for good debt that is on investment properties, for example? What do you think there? And, and I'd also like to get a bit into giving more the listeners more of a background as to your qualifications to talk on this matter. So please go right ahead. Okay, so I had to go through the unfortunate lesson that most investors do or business people of being undercapitalized. So if you do have leveraged investments so that you can have more rental properties or apartment buildings or whatever it is, just make sure that it is in line with something that you can afford and stress test yourself. What would happen if it went vacant for six months, let's say on a rental property? Could you maintain that or would you lose the property? If you lose the property, that's a problem then you're over leveraged. So I just make sure that if you have that good debt, make sure that it's sustainable. And just know that usually as entrepreneurs or investors or people who make these risks, we do have a t- tendency to be a little more optimistic than the reality is sometimes, um, whether it's how long it's going to be rented out or how bad a problem can be with turnover on a tenant property, for example, on a real estate deal. So just make sure you're not over leveraged. It's okay to have debt but I would tighten it up. And if you've got some properties that are not cash flowing, I would consider getting rid of them because honestly, housing prices are really high right now. People are stretched to the max to get mortgage payments. And if interest rates go up, they're pretty much tapped out when the Fed was at 1%. They're going to be really screwed once it gets to 3%. So I would consider that as well, just to tighten up a little bit on anything that's that your where your margins are, are not there. Hmm. And as far as your experience, your qualifications and what you went through, you know, what your experience was going through the financial crisis, I talked about it a little bit at the top of the show, but for the listeners, could you give them a bit of, a bit more about your background and what your strategy was to get through the Great Recession? I So I had been purchasing property since I was 18 years old in the year 2000, and I got in that over-leveraged situation in 08 and had 11 homes going to foreclosure. Had to end up at a bankruptcy attorney with my wife and my wife and I just hit reset. And in order to get through it, the first thing we did was we cut all of our spending, moved literally to save 50% on our um, housing expenses. We moved, we actually moved twice. Once we moved from California to the desert of California to save 50%. And then after living there for a few years, we saved even more by moving to Texas to save on income and also daily lifestyle expenses. So I've used moving as a way to cut a lot of spending. And I mean, we did crazy things. We got rid of our dogs. We had medical bills. We got rid of our TV. She sold her rings to pay off the cars. And then we just started focusing on buying income. And we thought we could become financially independent within five to 10 years. We did it in just under four years. 
And I'll tell you, I always tell people it's very doable. My definition of financial independence is when your passive income can pay for your monthly lifestyle expenses. But if you cut your monthly lifestyle expenses down and don't try to mimic society where you have a financed vehicle and a mortgage that's, you know, seven to eight times more than your annual income. If you actually live a sustainable lifestyle, you can actually become financially independent faster than you think. And again, I tried to do it in five or 10. We did it in like under four, which was honestly not, I was kind of surprised myself. And we didn't do it on huge income. Now it all snowballs. It all compounds. I mean, once, I mean, we paid off property, you start to make more money as you, as you roll into these investments. So eventually the income will go parabolic. But initially, financial independence, sometimes people are thinking of having that yacht and owning an island in Fiji. And I'm sure that's great, but you could bite off financial independence really quick if you just cut those expenses. And you'll probably get the yacht, but you're going to get the yacht in 10, 15 years from now, not next year. But I think you could realistically achieve a retirement type lifestyle rather quickly just by cutting expenses and stop investing for capital appreciation and start focusing on cash flow. Early retirement for sure sounds great, but sounds better than some lavish retirement, possibly. So that definitely sounds very enticing. Now, as far as your current strategy prior to the interview, we talked a little bit about what you're doing now, the kinds of things uh, related to crowdfunding and that kind of stuff that you're up to. Can you give the listeners a little bit more and give me a little bit more information about what you're doing there, what it's been like to get into that market, and then where you see that going in the future? There's several crowdfunding that I like, but I'll give you the two ones that I consider like the safest one. The first one is Peer Street, and they allow you to invest in real estate notes, first trust deeds, basically, and you're crowdfunding them. So some of them are, you know, 300,000, some of them are millions of dollars. Peer Street, what they've done, they, they were, first of all, their founder, is the guy who started Google Analytics, Brett Crosby. One of their founding investors is Dr. Michael Berry. So if anybody saw the movie, The Big Short, Dr. Michael Berry was the guy played by Christian Bale. So those are the people who started this company. They've really been a disruptor in the mortgage market because this was always a niche localized market where somebody needed a loan from a year to five years, either a bridge loan or a fix and flip loan. It's been a localized market. What they've done with Peer Street is they've nationalized it, they've become the biggest funder. So they essentially get the best loans. And you're not really seeing defaults on these because as soon as the originator realizes there's something wrong with a Peer Street loan, they almost come in and just buy it back because Peer Street's become so important to this mortgage market. And then the other company is just a private REIT. I think it'll give a lot of people who buy publicly traded REITs, they'll love this because you get all the income of a REIT without the volatility because it's not tradable. Now, it's not liquid, that means you might have to wait three months for redemption period or even a year sometimes. But the other one I like is fundrise.com. It's different than Peer Street. So they're not buying first trustees. They're focused on more equity deals. So they're buying into an actual performing apartment building, let's say a 300 units in Dallas or something, or a commercial property that might own a Chevron or have a, excuse me, a Walgreens as their tenant. So that's the private REIT side. I really like those crowdfunding investments. That's paying about both of them, Peer Street and Fundrise. They pay right around 8%. And it's been very safe, consistent income. I've been involved in both of those for just over two years now. Now, you don't get the leverage of buying a single family house with 20% down payment, but it's managed by a very professional group, very serious investors. 
group of people. It is tied to, to some of these properties that you might not get exposure to. You know, I own a lot of single family homes, but I don't have any Walgreens. But in the Fundrise portfolio, I do have Walgreens as my tenants. Wow. So you get a lot of asset diversification there in the tenant base as well. So you're not just tied to residential. Absolutely. And it's good to have diversification. That's what that's what ultimately is going to help you sleep at night with your income. You know, you don't want to have all your income coming from one single family house or two dozen properties in Houston. And what happens when there's a, a major event in that area? And all of a sudden, your income is focused. It's almost like having a job where you could lose your income from you're too concentrated. So have some chunks of income from all over. The stock market can be a solution, but real estate and crowdfunding, private deals as well. I mean, get involved in a lot of bridge loans for startup companies as well. Nice. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. What is the best investment you've ever made? That's a tricky one because I, I could do the, like myself, I'll tell you that the best investment I've ever made was in Bitcoin. I had gotten convinced into buying Bitcoin at $13. And then, of course, when it went up, became more interested in Bitcoin. And I ended up co-founding, or not co-founding, being one of the earliest investors into a publicly traded company that was mining crypto. They still do mine crypto. Obviously, they're down because of the crypto market, but that would have been my best investment was into the cryptocurrencies. Wow. And you uh, participated all the way up, I assume. So that's pretty great. That's pretty great. That was kind of lucky, kind of gambling, right? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it was hard to, I think objectively, it was difficult to predict that that was really going to go anywhere. The people that were really adherents of it all the way from the beginning were always convinced that it was going to, it was going to replace the dollar and such and such. But, you know, I think objectively, it was difficult to predict when Bitcoin itself was going to explode and eventually hit 20,000 like it did. Yeah. No, my biggest losses are in crypto as well. So biggest gains are in crypto, biggest losses are in crypto. And then I would say if you go to real estate, it's the same thing. I've, I've made a lot of money in real estate, but I've also, I've got some pretty big losses in real estate as well. Mm. So that gets us into the next question. You kind of touched on it. What is the worst investment you've ever made? I would say the biggest disaster of my life was just getting out of my comfort zone in higher end real estate. And then being undercapitalized and over leveraged and having a, a million dollar property end up doing a short sale on a 550 grand during the housing crisis. That was one of the biggest disasters of my life. Wow. Wow. So what did that process kind of look like for you? Can you get a, give us a little more granular detail as to what happened and maybe why you didn't sure. get out, you know, earlier? I thought I had timed it right. I was probably just, but maybe four or five months back behind. It caused me to max out my credit cards. It caused me to not even be able to pay off a lot of the debts for this this one thing that happened in 2008. Probably didn't wasn't done in my life until like 2011 because I was paying off debts and other investors that had partnered with me. And that was one, but there was like 10 others around it. So it was a lot of problems at the same time. And then consider that I was also making money from buying foreclosures. So <laughs> that is also, I lost my income as well. So it was, it was a rough 2009, that's for sure. Wow. What is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? Well, with investing, it's always come down to the people. Everybody likes to allocate their money to other people by habit, I guess, whether it's a stockbroker or a realtor or 
crowdfunded or whatever. But in the end, it's always down to the people who run it. So I'm very careful with whoever I invest with or whoever, if I'm going to buy a property and I have somebody who's going to fix it. A lot of people, when they're looking at a business or an investment, they get sold on the asset. They get sold on the, uh, the income statement. Like, let's say you're looking at a rental and you see 33% return, or you're looking at a business and you see a gold mine. There's, there's a chance of all this discovery and all this stuff. In the end, who's running it? That's all that matters. I'll tell you, 80% of the investment is going to be based off of the people, their drive, their relentless attitude, and their integrity. So before I invest in anything, honestly, I'll almost 99% make my decision off of the people at the top. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Experience is very important in any business, especially an investing type of, uh, type of situation. So absolutely. I, I look at my multifamily investing that way, try to do my best to participate with the most experienced people I possibly can. So absolutely appreciate that. Now, before we sign it off here, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the passive wealth strategies audience from your background, whether in the future money trends letter or in your own passive income life? Oh, I mean, I love finding passive income ideas and sharing them and testing them. I do have something at my website, futuremoneytrends.com. You can subscribe free of my wealth digest or go to futuremoneytrends.com slash cash where I have some of these ideas already laid out. And I would say the biggest thing I would leave the audience with is that my wife and I were able to do it. We were not making hundreds of thousands of dollars. We didn't have any sort of special degrees. We just did it. We just read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Cashflow Quadrant and these books that everybody's heard about and just do it. And I guarantee you, if you just stay focused and don't stop, just don't stop. And this will happen for you. Wow. Just stick with it. Make it happen. Awesome. I love the inspiration of that message and the motivation behind it. Where can our listeners get in touch with you moving forward? Just go to futuremoneytrends.com. If you guys subscribe, you'll receive what I'm investing in now, as well as I share some of the crazy stories that my wife and I went through, as well as the new things we're investing in. Awesome. To all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you really learned something. Certainly encourage you to look up Daniel at Future Money Trends. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. If you have someone, you have a friend, a colleague that could benefit from this information, please share with them and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For now, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. You can find out more about us at PassiveWealthStrategy.com. And I look forward to talking with you next week. Take care. 